Our scripture reading for today is from Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at the Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to, for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. And now help us to hear what you would say to us. Speak your words to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is now the uh, third sermon for those of you who might be new. Uh, I'm preaching through the last week of Jesus' life. And so today uh, is the third. Uh, we're going to consider Wednesday. Uh, on Palm Sunday, Jesus walked symbolically. He entered into Jerusalem on a donkey to wide acclaim uh, by the crowds. Then we heard about how on Monday, Jesus chased the merchants and the money exchangers out of the temple, um, criticizing all who were involved with the system of animal sacrifices, which had become a mere religious transaction. Then on Tuesday, Jesus condemned the temple leadership, dismantling the efforts of the Pharisees, the Herodians, Sadducees, and the scribes, who tried to discredit him uh, and charge him with treason blasphemy, and heresy. And so today, uh, we're going to consider Wednesday, a day that is known as Spy Wednesday. So we had Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, and now Spy Wednesday. It's called Spy Wednesday because, as you just heard, Judas Iscariot uh, made a deal with the chief priests and became a kind of spy uh, looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus for some money. This is the Passover season. And so it's a time that celebrated the deliverance of the Israelites from the uh, Egyptians. And the Romans were especially weary of this time. It was not lost on them 
the significance of the Passover feast. And so even though they would expect some grumblings, complaining, and even some minor disturbances as Jesus caused in the temple on Monday, uh, any meaningful threat or rebellion uh, would be immediately put down because they really wanted to maintain order. So all the people who are involved, including the temple leadership, the soldiers, they wanted to maintain uh, order in the temple precincts. And that is why the chief priests and the scribes, they want to conspire and to kill Jesus by stealth. And, and stealth, this word, it, it means more than just simply to do something in secret. There is in this word the sense of cunning deceit, a kind of malicious scheming that they are planning because they want to do it where they don't get in trouble uh, with the other uh, authorities. And so they're making these plans. And while they're doing that, we find Jesus in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. We have no idea who this Simon is. But because Jesus typically stayed in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, uh, some people have speculated that this Simon may be their father, that this is his home, and that uh, perhaps he was among those who had earlier been healed of leprosy by Jesus. In any case, an unnamed woman comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Mark also does not tell us who this woman is, uh, but the later Gospel of John will identify her as Mary, uh, the, brother, uh, the, the sister of Martha and her brother Lazarus. So it may very well be that this is their home. So... Mark also doesn't tell us why she does this. And to us, it just seems a very strange thing, right? So some woman walks in, breaks a flask of very expensive uh, perfume, and just pours it on Jesus' head, right? It's, uh, it's odd. Uh, but those present recognize that this was a typical, acceptable gesture of hospitality. This is what they do. It's weird for us, but anointing someone with oil is what they did as a sign of welcome into their homes. And so the people that were witnessing this no one seems to have been concerned that she was doing this because this is what they do. But they were very upset by the fact that she used such an expensive, very expensive ointment to do this. In addition, I think some also probably recognized or perhaps were offended by the symbolic meaning of her gesture because it was the prophets who used to anoint the kings of Israel. And Peter had earlier in the gospel declared that Jesus is the Christ, that is the anointed one. And here she is now. She affirms those words and completes those words by anointing Jesus with this oil, as had the prophets done in anointing the kings of Israel. Whatever she may have meant, Jesus interprets her actions in this way. She says, he says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Even though she anointed his head, perhaps as a messianic sign of the king, Jesus interprets that as an anointing of his body in preparation for his burial. And then Jesus declares that what she has done will be remembered, which is what we are doing today. So what has she done? What has she done? Well, we know that Jesus had been telling his disciples repeatedly what was to come. He had told them multiple times that he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, that they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that they will mock him and spit on him, they will flog him and kill him, and after three days, be raised. 
Jesus' disciples heard this message again and again and again, and they did not get it. But she somehow seems to have made the connection that God's anointed, the Messiah, the King of Israel, will die. She knows somehow, apparently, what's about to happen. Perhaps she also believed that Jesus will be raised. She alone in this scene seems to understand what was about to happen. Perhaps she had even heard the threats made by the scribes and other temple leadership. And she did what she could, and Jesus calls that a beautiful thing. She did something beautiful for me. Those around her don't get it. And they direct their anger and indignation at this woman. They scold her, or literally they snort their noses at her. They complain that she has wasted her money. It's not their money, but they're they're complaining she's wasted her money. That instead of anointing Jesus, that alabaster flask could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. And that money given to the poor. Imagine what it could have done. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading this story, I'm a little surprised that a bunch of men, presumably his disciples among them, most of them poor fishermen, would know the price of a high-end perfume. I don't think I'm the exception in this, right? I can tell you that I know nothing about high-end perfumes, I know nothing about perfumes. If the category of perfumes came up in jeopardy, the only answer I would have is Chanel number five. (laughs) It's the only sort of brand name perfume that that I know about. Um, But I could not tell you how much that costs before this week, before I looked it up on Amazon. I don't even know if it's considered like a good perfume or if it's considered expensive or anything, right? But I can't be the only one, right? Any men here know how much a 3.4 ounce bottle of Chanel number no. 5 costs? Any men? <laughs> Jim knows, of course. Okay. Uh, yeah. On Amazon, it's around $100. You know, so I, I don't know, again, I don't know. I have no idea if that's expensive or not. But I did a Google search for the most expensive perfumes in the world and discovered that there are a bunch that sell for thousands of dollars per ounce. Thousands of dollars. And... If you're really rich, there are limited edition perfumes in specially crafted bottles that sell for millions of dollars. The ointment that this woman brought is not quite that. But it goes for more than 300 denarii. Earlier in Mark, someone had suggested with 200 denarii, you could feed 5,000 families with 200. So 300, that's a lot. And we know that one denarius was roughly what a worker would earn in one day. So 300 is is roughly a year's salary. So imagine a year's salary. That's how much this this ointment costs. So it's impossible to imagine that an average person could possess such a thing. Right? Like, you can't imagine that. I, I certainly can't. It's likely that she comes from significant wealth. Bethany is a pretty small village. Like, I think everybody probably knew pretty much everybody. I grew up in a pretty small town. 
about maybe 15,000 people. And even in a town that size, we knew who the rich families were. We knew, you know, we knew where they lived, we knew what their houses were like, uh, we knew we kind of had rumors about what they owned. Um, I remember as a kid, I used to deliver newspapers to one of those houses. Like, many people thought they were the, the richest family uh, where I lived. And I remember at their Christmas party, I got invited because I was their newspaper delivery boy. <laughs> and um, I remember as a kid just walking into their house and just like, they had a spiral staircase in the middle of the room. And I, I just like, wow, you know? And then I literally got lost trying to find the bathroom because their house was that big in my childhood, you know, memories. I don't think it's probably that big, but, you know. But everybody knew. Like, everybody knew. It was a town everybody knew. So I think everybody knows who this woman is, that someone who could possess such a thing. And so it makes me wonder when I'm reading this now, it makes me suspicious that they know the value of this flask. It, it can't just be some random person walking in and they go, oh, I, I think they, maybe they've been eyeing this flask. Maybe it was in that home. It makes me at least a little skeptical about the genuineness of their indignation. That it might be nothing more than first century virtue signaling. Oh, we should have sold it to help the poor. Now, as Presbyterians, objectively speaking, this is too much, right? This anointing, right? It's over the top. It's excessive. We, good Presbyterians, we would never do this. You know, this weekend, we were at the, our session, we were on retreat, and uh, one of our members during dinner poured a lot of salad dressing <laughs> under salad. And there were some around that table who judged him or her for that excessive use of salad dressing. We don't like that. We don't like ostentatious displays of anything, right? We have to be modest. We have to be humble rich. We are not Spartan, but we encourage sensible, frugal use of our resources, including our salad dressings. A few drops of nard would have been sufficient for this moment. It would have been sufficiently symbolic, sufficiently powerful to anoint Jesus with just a few drops. Why destroy the entire flask? Perhaps some of it should have been saved and given to the... Now, that is a good argument. That is a good Presbyterian argument. Today, we make similar judgments about how other people spend their money, how other Christians spend their money, right? We do this all the time. We judge them. We do exactly what those who witnessed this, did. I don't know if you saw uh, during the Super Bowl this year, there were uh, several commercials. Um, uh, he Gets Us, remember that? The, right, the He Gets Us commercials. It's, uh, you know, they have pictures of you know, people suffering and Jesus, you know, he gets us, right? And uh, it's, it's a Christian message. And I think the message of the commercials that Jesus has compassion for all, that he gets us, I think that's a good message. I have no issues. I think that's a good message. But many complain, many complain that Christians who spend $7 million for a 30 second spot, instead of spending that $7 million on actually helping the poor that they're displaying in that ad, that that's hypocrisy. That's wasteful. Why not spend that $7 million on the poor instead of telling us about the poor? Similarly, I remember years and years ago, uh, we used to do uh, some Bible studies, and we used uh, a series of videos produced by this one church. 
And uh, I remember during one lesson, uh, the pastor was talking in the video, and he was driving a Range Rover. And the only thing that the people in the small group could talk about was, why is that pastor driving a Range Rover? <laughs> right? That, that was the judgment. He shouldn't be driving, I guess, what was considered a very, you know, a, a luxurious car. I also remember way, way back, more than three de- decades ago, a popular preacher by the name of Tony Campolo. He gave a message asking, if Jesus were here today, would he drive a BMW? That was the question he posed. Would Jesus drive a BMW? He argued that a luxury car is essentially a status symbol. And he argued that given the suffering in the world, do you think Jesus would spend that money on a status symbol for himself? Or would he give that money to the poor? I heard that some Christians, where I was, I was in Illinois at the time, the local Christian radio station cut him off in the middle of the sermon because they didn't want to play the rest of his sermon because they were afraid of offending their listeners and their potential donors. Last week, remember Jesus said, love your neighbors as yourself, remember that? Love your neighbors as yourself. So maybe these people here, they heard that message and they're saying, Jesus, you told us we have to love our neighbors as ourselves. Clearly this woman is not doing that. Jesus, you should criticize her. Even if she wanted to anoint you, couldn't she have saved something? I mean, why is she, she's not getting it. She should care for the poor. She should love others more. Right? I think that's a reasonable argument. But Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus defends her. Jesus tells them that what she's done is beautiful. Yes, it's extravagant. Perhaps even irresponsible. But it's beautiful and something to be remembered. You know, I think when I hear that, at some basic level, I think we, we can understand this, right? At some level in our, in our basic humanity, aren't we all, aren't we, aren't we moved by acts of extravagance? Right? Don't, don't we find certain acts of just extravagance beautiful? And she did it in preparation for Jesus' burial. And I, th- I think that's the key here for me. Because I, I imagine that there are some of us here today, perhaps many of us here today, that, that we regret that we wish we had done something beautiful for someone who is no longer with you, right? Aren't there people that have passed away in your life that you wish had you had the time, had you known that as an expression of your love, you might have done something that others would have considered excessive, extravagant, wasteful. I think Jesus is pointing out to these folks who are acting high and mighty about helping the poor in theory, in the abstract, but they are clueless about what Jesus is facing. He's about to be buried, and they're they're not paying attention to that. And instead, they choose instead to attack this woman who is aware of that and wants to do something for him in preparation for that moment. They are claiming to care for the many in the abstract, in the idea, 
but they cannot care for the one, the very one in their midst. They fail to see the beauty of her act and instead try to shame her extravagant gesture of devotion for some, you know, principle of social justice. And Jesus says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Right? So again, pointing to his upcoming burial. And, and I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. What's more important than caring for the poor? What's more important than loving our neighbors as ourselves? What did Jesus say? Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all that you are. In accepting this woman's gift and with the language that he just used here, Jesus has placed himself above the needs of the poor in this moment. Only God can command and receive such devotion. And so you see what he's doing here. He's making this radical, scandalous claim that in this moment, he is more important than caring for the poor. The second great commandment. He is worthy of the honor of devotion that is reserved for God alone. That means he's either a crazy egomaniac or he's one in whom the fullness of God is fully present. By commending her actions toward him, Jesus has placed himself in the same position as God because he is God's anointed, God's only son. This is not Jesus being callous. Hey, you're always going to have the poor with you. He's not being dismissive of their needs. In fact, his quoting is from Deuteronomy 15. And when they heard him start that quote, they would know the rest of that sentence. Deuteronomy 15, which we are not as familiar with, says, For they will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Right? The point of that quote is not, yeah, there's going to be poor. The point is, therefore, you have an opportunity. Therefore, you are called. You have a responsibility. There will be the poor. That, that's just the reality of our fallen world. But you now, you have a therefore. You have a responsibility to them to open your hand wide, to love your neighbor as yourself, in other words. She may not realize fully what she is doing here, but she has declared Jesus to be God's anointed, the promised Messiah, who has come not to establish some sort of passing earthly kingdom, but to die so that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. She saw that he is, therefore, worthy to be given all. She will not let the good virtue of responsible stewardship or even the important command to care for the poor distract her from the one thing that is needful in this moment, from the one thing that she could do, that she could do, and she did it. Let me close with this. Remember uh, in the past I said that Mark likes to make sandwiches, right? Not ham sandwiches, but, you know, literary sandwiches, right? He likes to start off telling one story and kind of interrupt himself by telling another story and then finishing the first story that he did, right? So he likes to put a story between a story. And that's what he's done here. This is another one of his famous sandwiches. Our reading began with the chief priests and the scribes planning murder. And then our reading ended with Judas joining them, right? And in between, we have the story of the anointing. 
And so whenever Mark does these sandwiches, he's trying to tell us, like, these two stories are connected, and they help to interpret one another. And the way he sets it up, these are two extremes, right? She's preparing Jesus' body for burial. She's trying to honor him in his death, while Judas chooses to betray him for what we discover in the other Gospels, a trifle sum of money. She spends this expensive, very expensive ointment, and Judas is willing to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is, comparatively speaking, not much. She showers Jesus with this extravagant gift with understanding and devotion, whereas Judas now is just going to um, sell him out um, as an act of uh, betrayal. She is shown now to be the true disciple, even though Judas is called one of the 12 and part of that inner group. In the past, you know, when, when we look at the, the study of the Judas, in the past, Judas is typically, almost always, depicted as the worst of sinners. That what he did was like the worst thing that a human being could do. Uh, Dante, for example, um, had... Judas in the very lowest circle of hell. And Dante has him being chewed by Satan with his legs failing out of his mouth, enduring the greatest pain for all eternity. That's, so he saw him, this is the worst guy that has ever lived. And this is the punishment for him for all eternity. But over the years, and especially, I think, in recent years, there have been efforts to rehabilitate, to sympathize, or to excuse what Judas has done. So as to why he may have betrayed Jesus, because Mark does not spell out exactly why he did it, some have said, well, you know, you Presbyterians, you believe in predestination, so he was predestined to do this, so he had no choice. He, you know. Others suggest that, you know, he was the one who truly loved Jesus because he knew that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world, so he handed him over so that he could die for the sins of the world. He was willing to make that sacrifice. Others describe him as an idealistic revolutionary trying to force Jesus' hand into a revolution. Others, that he's a uh, pragmatist trying to, you know, out of his concern for the poor when he witnessed this. Others, that he's just a, a tragic hero or something like that. The later Gospels of Luke and John will attribute his treachery to possession by Satan because what he does is so evil that they attribute it to the forces of demonic possession. John will further say that he's a thief, that as the treasure of the group that he used to uh, pilfer from the, from the money bags, and that uh, this is the reason, right? Just sheer greed. And Matthew also says that he was greedy. Mark, however, doesn't say. Mark just doesn't say. But because he sandwiches it between this story, we get this clue, right? He betrays Jesus immediately following the anointing with this precious oil. And I think this is the straw that broke Judas's back. He and the other disciples never really believed that Jesus had to die. They didn't. They kept thinking in terms of earthly kingdoms, right? Here comes Jesus. He's super powerful, right? He can feed people free. He can heal people free. You don't need medical insurance. Just, just go to Jesus. 
here's someone who is putting all sort of the institutional religious people to shame. He's, you know, winning debates. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. Here is the Messiah. He's going to establish the rule on earth, and we're going to be a part of that. Right? The disciples are jockeying for position. Lord, let me be on your right hand. Let me be on your left hand. Who's going to be the greatest in your coming kingdom? That's what they want. They're looking to Jesus to carry them to honor and glory and riches. And now finally, after repeated witnessing of Jesus' actions, I think Judas finally gets it. He sees that he receives and acknowledges that he's going to die. Jesus, he sees, has no initiative, no plans to fight, no plans to even save up some money for that upcoming revolution. So I think Judas is primarily just disillusioned and disappointed. With you. He finally gets, he's not doing what I thought he was going to do. He's not going to do for me, help me advance, that I thought he was going to do. And so he turns away, and in his resentment, he's going to try to squeeze out whatever trifling sum that he can get from that betrayal. This must have been incredibly painful for Jesus. Right? He was one of the 12. He was one of the 12. He chose him. And the very fact that he was the treasure of the group tells us like, they trusted him. They trusted him. But now he walks away because Jesus thinks that Jesus is not who he thought he was and who he wanted him to be. And I think this is not that different from why so many people walk away from Jesus today and throughout history. Many people look to faith, to religion, to Jesus to get something. Maybe in times of need or desperation, they look to him and Jesus does not deliver. You don't get that job you wanted. You don't get that date you wanted. You don't get the healing that you earnestly, desperately prayed for. You don't get that reconciliation in that broken relationship. Or whatever else, whatever good thing you may ask for, he does not deliver. And we, want, we need that help. People want a Jesus who can make a difference, a material improvement in our earthly, everyday life. And often God seems silent and God does not deliver. And while most people may not say it quite so crassly, there is a demand of God of health and wealth. And we, we expect to be blessed, which is often a cold word for many for material blessings and comforts, physical, tangible blessings. And by extension, many people ask, what can the church do for me? And perhaps, perhaps others are asking a better question, that is, what is the church doing for the poor? Perhaps they reject Jesus because the church isn't doing enough, that the church should be doing more. I agree, we should be doing more. But our reading today reminds me and challenges me to think about something more profound. The woman's offering calls me to worship Jesus, first and foremost. She makes me ask the question, what can I offer to Jesus by way of devotion? Jesus said she did what she could. She recognized Jesus as the Messiah. I don't think she understood everything, but she she knew enough. She knew enough. 
she recognized in Jesus that this is the one on his way to the cross, the one and only eternally begotten, the one who will die for our sins. And so she did what she could. She did what she could. And that is what Jesus received. I don't think it was the fact that the monetary value of the, of the oil was so great. It's the fact that she did what she could. Who knows? Who knows? She could be so wealthy that it wasn't that big of a deal for her as it might be for us, this flask. She did what she could. And I want to pose that question for us, especially in this season of Lent. What is it that I can do? I hope Jesus' words to this woman is an encouragement to you. She was commended and she's remembered for doing what she could do, what she could do, not what she couldn't do. What can you do? I've told you over the years, you know, you can't do everything, but you can do something. You may not possess these kinds of valuable possessions, but you can do something. There are things that you can do. And I want to encourage you to make that offering. And may that offering that you give in worship and with your whole life turn out to be just something beautiful. Something beautiful for Jesus. Pray with me. God, I know that um, sometimes it's easy to uh, think that we're we're better uh, than Judas, that we would never betray you in such a way. And yet in so many ways, um, we have turned from you. And in this season of Lent, we are reminded, especially of our shortcomings. So God, we ask uh, this day, as we are reminded, help us to come to you, help us to recognize who you are. And in that knowledge, to come before you in worship, that you and you alone are worthy of our worship. And help us to do what we can. And whatever that is, God, we ask that you would receive it for Jesus' sake. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.